Welcome to Better Worlds Ocean, where we dive into discussions on cutting-edge technology, data-driven solutions, and groundbreaking innovations aimed at tackling oceanic challenges. Join us as we ride the quest of a new era in global sustainability and work together to preserve our oceans for generations to come. Welcome back to Better Worlds Ocean podcast series, where we're looking at the next thing, the new thing, and what's happening now in ocean data, technology, innovations, and insights to help us think through the solutions that are needed for our ocean and our world. Today, we're joined by Bubba Cook, WWF's Central and Western Pacific Tuna Manager, and someone who himself has migrated the Pacific Ocean a bit like a tuna, although possibly in a slightly different direction. And I'll let you introduce yourself, Bubba, and then this is going to be a podcast where we talk a lot about fish. So I am thrilled. Well, thank you, Kate. Um, and thank you for the introduction. Yeah, I've had a, a pretty wide and, and varied uh, migratory path, as you as you framed it, uh, you know, growing up on the Gulf Coast of, of Texas and ultimately finding my way via the U.S. Navy and, and education in fisheries and, and law to Alaska, where I cut my teeth in, in fisheries conservation and management um, with the, the National Marine Fisheries Service before joining WWF in Alaska, uh, then making my way to the South Pacific via the United States Peace Corps and, and ultimately back to WWF in the position I currently hold, um, focusing on tuna management. Um, and, and I'm really happy to be here talking with you today uh, because one aspect of that journey was the, the discovery and engagement with technology solutions uh, for the most pressing fisheries conservation and management challenges that we face. And, and uh, becoming engaged in that space has been one of the more rewarding aspects of my career. So can we talk about tuna a little bit first? Because they are amazing fish. They are very fast. They can retract their fins to be more streamlined. They can heat their muscles. Do you have other favorite tuna facts? There are multiple different species that we catch, but what, what, is, what do you think is great about tuna? I, I think as, as far as biological engineering, they're probably one of the most fascinating fish on the planet because, um, you know, so much so that the U.S. Navy, even whenever I was serving, was looking at the, the fusiform shape of, of tuna and trying to figure out ways to develop, you know, models on their, their skin and scales and their finlets to, uh, to fit on submarines such that they could make submarines more efficient and quieter uh, as they travel through the ocean. So I think that alone uh, suggests just how, how unique and, and, and how, um, just how fascinating these, these uh, creatures can be. Uh, and when you're talking about a fish that, you know, is, it can weigh as much as a Volkswagen and and swim as fast as a Ferrari. Uh, you know, it's it's a uh, you know they they're incredible fish in in that regard. You know, when you're looking at Pacific bluefin tuna or uh, uh, or even the smallest uh, of the tunas, the small neuritics and and skipjack tuna, which everyone knows from their tuna sandwich. Um, you know, they're really remarkable in their life history and the critical role that they play in in the ocean ecosystem. Let's talk about that life history because that's important to when we think about technology and management too. So in the Pacific, a lot of these tuna, they don't live very long, right? Five, seven years. What's the longest lived tuna? 
Yeah, so like the the skipjack tunas are the the shortest uh, or the small neuritics or the shortest lived tunas, and you're talking about you know five to seven years. They breed after I think with skipjack they breed after their first year, so um, they're kind of like the rabbits of the the sea, and and they reproduce really quickly. Uh, but they're because of that they're a very important food resource. Uh, you know, it's one of the last great wild. Uh, foraging, you know, enterprises of humanity is to to go out and catch these skipjack tuna, uh, typically using persane vessels, uh, which use big persane nets to scoop them out of the ocean. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the the bluefin tunas, which can you know live you know several decades and. Uh, uh, and you know they're they're kind of like the the lions and the tigers of the savanna. They're big predators that uh, uh, exist in the ocean, and they're at the top of the food chain. Um, and so you've you've got that that complete spectrum across the the variety of species of tunas that exist. You know from the 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 what would be considered a, a forage species all the way up to a primary predator. So it's uh, they're very interesting fish in that regard. And the bluefin is the one that people might be familiar from because it's it's famous for being very expensive, very valuable sushi fish, and you know that bright red tuna fish that they might have seen at a restaurant. But they all spawn in the same location, and then they circumnavigate the Pacific Ocean throughout their lifestyle to hang out with other juveniles and to feed. So they they cross the ocean multiple times in their lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think uh, it's it's kind of exemplary of the, the value that we place on the fish, uh, even if it is somewhat artificial, but the annual fish auction at, at Skiji Market in Tokyo, where, uh, you know, they, they typically uh, auction off one bluefin tuna for a million U.S. dollars. You know, it varies from year to year, but it's a, a crazy price. And it's very symbolic in, in that regard, but uh, it does provide an indication of just how valuable these fish are um, and how important they are as a, as a food resource, whether it's as a, a baseline uh, shelf-stable protein like tin tuna uh, or the high-value sushi and sashimi that has become ubiquitous across, uh, certainly across the, the West in, in sushi shops and and supermarkets and airports everywhere. So one of the places where you focus your work and that I want to dig into next is what are called small-scale fisheries. And small-scale fisheries are the focus of a project called Too Big to Ignore, which talks about the fact that they are an important source of nutrition for over a billion people worldwide. So 10% of the planet is relying on the fish from these fisheries for their sources of nutrition, and that they have a high percentage of employing women. This is often uh, small-scale fisheries are where you're seeing women come into the economy and play major roles in these businesses. What else is it about these types of fisheries that makes them important, and, and how would you define small-scale? Oh, how to define small scale. I think that's something everyone struggles with, um, you know, because you can just within that concept, you could have everything from a small dugout canoe going out to catch, you know, a few fish per day uh, up to, a, a, you know, a 20 foot long uh, vessel with an outboard on it that uh, might harvest, you know, several hundred pounds of fish a day. Um, so it's, uh, 
I think it's really difficult to classify what constitutes a, a quote unquote small scale fishery, um, but it, it certainly doesn't diminish the importance of those fisheries. As you indicate, it's not only uh, about food security and, and employment security for small countries uh, around the world, but also the populations that they, they service. Um, in, in the Pacific, for example, you know, in the Pacific Islands, uh, they have a limited amount of resources available to them. You look at a, a country like Tuvalu or Tokelau, uh, their supermarket is right off of the beach, more or less. I mean, they they have to rely on the, the fish resources around their islands to survive. Um, and if you look at, at countries like Indonesia and the Philippines, so much of their economy is is driven by the coastal fisheries that are prosecuted primarily by, you know, a lot of small scale vessels. Um, where it becomes critically important to consider is that, you know, I think we spend a lot of time focusing on the impact of large commercial fisheries that engage large vessels like the Persane vessels and large longline vessels and, and that kind of thing. Um, but we can't neglect the fact that they could be having the same impact as thousands of small scale vessels operating across, you know, thousands of miles of coastline. Uh, and we need to be able to manage those fisheries as successfully in perpetuity and, and, and with the same amount of vigor as we do the, the large scale commercial fisheries as well. Yeah, that brings us to some of the distinctions between the, the types of communities and the gear that they use between what we'll call, you know, small and large scale fisheries, as you said, you know, wh what is there a, a firm one definition of small scale fisheries? No, but we are generally talking about fisheries that are not out on the high seas and the high seas is that big area of the ocean that's outside of 200 miles from any country's coastline. So the Pacific has a lot of high seas. And when we talk about big industrial fishing, that's a lot of where that kind of fishing is happening. Although sometimes it does happen within 200 miles from shore, they have agreements with countries to fish there. But these smaller scale fisheries are often closer to shore and that means their boats aren't as big necessarily, or they don't carry as big engines, or maybe they can't carry the same types of satellite transmission technologies that a big vessel can, which can both allow you to track it and allow that vessel to be more precise in its navigation and how it fishes. So what kinds of things are small scale fisheries doing to keep in mind conservation while they also make a living for themselves and their families and their communities? And what kinds of technologies are playing a role in helping them do that? Sure, well, I, I think first and foremost, we have to recognize that uh, you know many of these communities are, are highly dependent on the fisheries. And so sustainability is inherent for them, you know, because they recognize that, say in the case of a small island like Nauru or Tuvalu or uh, even Kiribati, if they don't have tuna, if they don't have their coastal fishery resources, then they don't have not only a way to feed their families, but to pay for their schools or to pay for their hospitals or to pay for their roads. It is the income engine for these communities. So they recognize that if it goes away, they have nothing else but aid to rely on. And that aid is often fickle. So, um, so they, uh, they have to make sure that, that uh, those stocks are managed sustainably. And 
And I think that's that's given rise to a greater awareness among the particularly the, the small island governments and, and even the governments of the Philippines and Indonesia, that as difficult as it is to, to be able to manage literally hundreds of vessels, if not thousands, spread across thousands, if not tens of thousands of miles of coastline, um, that they have to figure out ways to do that. And the traditional ways of, of doing that using paper forms and and you know, people beating feet to the docks and, and that kind of thing is just not good enough. And so we've had to look at various technology solutions uh, that, uh, that help us do that more effectively and more efficiently. Now, when you start talking about technology and start talking about small scale fishers, then the question becomes, well, how do we make it economically feasible? Because you're talking about very small fishermen who are are making on the order of a few dollars a day in some cases, and um, and asking them to take on board a, a you know a three hundred dollar VMS unit that it costs you know a buck fifty every time they send a transmission is just not financially viable for them. So we have to figure out other ways to. Uh, support, you know, tracking of those vessels using automated identification systems or AIS as opposed to vessel monitoring systems, which is BMS and a proprietary system. And we've seen some really uh, dramatic developments in those kinds of technologies in recent years. And just like every technology, everything is getting smaller, more powerful, uh, more economical, and, and generally more feasible to support, you know, various applications. I mean, who would have thought 20 years ago that we'd be sitting here on a computer talking to each other today, each with a, a supercomputer in our pocket, you know, more computing power than it took to put all of the Apollo moon missions uh, in place. And we're carrying it around every day with us, uh, basically to look at pictures of cats. So, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and I think that says something also about, you know, where technology is, is headed in that, that we will see advancements in the, the current technology, but even the technology as it is, is, uh, is, is at a point where I think it's becoming a viable solution for many of these fisheries. So I think of you as the instigator of the, the SAFET conference, the seafood, and you're going to have to break the acronym down for me because at this point I just know it as the SAFET conference. What was the genesis behind wanting to bring that community of people together and, and how has it grown? Well, the, the origin of the Seafood and Fisheries Emerging Technologies Conference started with a, a proposal from uh, WWF. We were asked to look at, you know, the potential of drone technology for use in, in um, illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing surveillance and monitoring, control, and surveillance operations. And as I started to dig into the technology, I was like, well, why are we just looking at, at drones? I was like, there's a, a whole world of technology out there that, uh, that has potential applications in this space. And, and so we expanded the scope of, of the work and, and said, you know, one of the things that we're seeing is, is that a lot of the fishery managers just simply weren't aware of the technology that was out there. And a lot of the technology providers simply weren't able to connect with uh, the uh, uh, practitioners in a real effective way. And, um, and so, you know, we said, let's bring these communities together and, and let's have them sit in the same room together and not only have the opportunity for the, the technology providers to say, hey, here's this neat toy that we've got we think it would help you, but also have the practitioners say, uh, yeah, you know, that's actually nice, but it would be a lot better if it could do this. 
and or it'd be a lot better if it was much cheaper to do this and um, and that that kind of created that dynamic where you know we we got a, that community together in the same room together and created cross pollination it actually drove innovation in those technologies you know that that you know it actually created that community that helped facilitate that thinking around okay well obviously we can't offer uh, you know a, a thousands of dollars worth of, of equipment that requires power to be used on board a, a canoe, but maybe we can come up with a solar powered you know, unit that weighs less than a pound that they could just tether to the side of their vessel. And they did. And, um, and so I think that's been the real value of, of that process is, is bringing those communities together in a way that you saw that push and pull. And, and I think another feature of that was that we got technology providers in the same room that, uh, you know, some one technology provider might look at another and say, hey, you know what? Your thing would work well with our thing. Let's get together. And we saw those those businesses kind of merge together, and their technologies kind of merge together in a way that benefited ultimately the practitioners that were in the room. So it's been very rewarding in that respect. And how long has that conference and its associated programs been running now? So we did the first conference in 2014 in Aniara and Solomon Islands. Uh, this the second we held in. Auckland in 2016, um, and the most recent in-person conference uh, we held was in 2019 in Bangkok, Thailand. Each time it got progressively bigger. Uh, the last conference uh, we held in person uh, in, in Bangkok was about 250 participants, uh, 20 technology providers uh, that were present uh, as part of an exhibition. Um, and, uh, and I think they came from about 40 different countries, in, which is, was really exciting. Um, thanks to the pandemic, we had to post, postpone the, the most recent uh, conference. We will be holding uh, an, another in-person conference in October of uh, 2023, the 3rd through the 5th of, of 2023 in October uh, in Bali, Indonesia. Uh, but in the interim, we took everything online as part of a webinar series in 2020 and 2021, which was actually a, a, somewhat of a blessing because we were able to reach a lot of uh, the community that we wouldn't have been able to get to the in-person conferences otherwise. And so, for instance, we had uh, participants from the Middle East and, and Africa and South America and, and remote places that otherwise wouldn't have been able to make it to a an in-person conference, but got exposed to all of these technology tools that that uh, could potentially help them in their in their fisheries management conservation efforts, and uh, and as a result, we've seen the community grow from around 1,200 to more than 2,500 during that online conference series. So uh, it's it's been uh, quite a journey from 2014 to where we are today. Yeah, I'll say that I got to participate in the online one during the pandemic, and I thought, oh, I don't know, online, small-scale seafood emerging fisheries technology conference, how is this going to be? And I think our panel had 500 people there. I mean, it was an enormous level of attendance with really engaged discussions during the breakout groups and people really hungry to share information. And so I, I agree that I think that online session really gave more people a, a chance to engage and also just demonstrated how communications technology has lowered the barrier for people to connect with this information, right? When we talk about these emergent technologies, 
one of the things is, you know, what do you, what do you do? Do you go on, do you do a web search and say, I want to put a camera on my boat, what camera, right? Like this is not always easy to know where to start, but now with these types of forums coming on, then it's easier for people to know not just where to go to ask for referrals for things as a fishing operator, but also to know where to test technologies. We have another episode in the series where we talked to Erica Montague at the Schmidt Marine Technology Program, who funds a lot of fisheries technology projects. And she talked about the challenges of really connecting people who have a technology idea with users to test it out, which is exactly what SAFET has provided, particularly in the Pacific. It's, you know, it, it's, you said when it went online, it was able to get more global, but a lot of your core constituency is in the Pacific still. There's a real need to make sure we're also covering Indian Ocean and Atlantic Ocean and, and a lot of other ocean areas and other fisheries to make sure these connections are happening to, to share information and, and grow the tech. Yeah, I agree, and I, and I you know I think that we are seeing that expansion and and the the impact of the platform, and we certainly uh, we have a vision of of creating a a centralized hub for all things uh, emerging technologies for fisheries and seafood to provide that platform where if someone has you know their small scale fisher out of South. America or out of Africa, they can go to the the website and just ask the question, you know, what what type of technology would help me? And having that community there to be able to say, steer them to a tech provider or steer them into the resource library that shows, you know, all of the various applications of a particular technology they're looking at in one place, um, you know, will hopefully, you know, create the, the opportunity to avoid all of those, you know, pilots that get repeated over and over and that kind of thing, but actually start to move some of these technologies more towards implementation and not just, you know, fits and starts. And uh, and that's one of the primary objectives of, of uh, SAFET is to, to create that space where we can learn from each other and that way we're not repeating the same mistakes and, and we're able to move the technology forward in an effective way. Um, one particular aspect of technology that you just uh, touched on was connectivity. So many of these technologies rely on uh, internet connectivity and just general data transfer. And, and that's something that I think is, has been groundbreaking just within the last year or so. Uh, you know, one of the limitations in the Pacific, for example, is you look at a country like Tuvalu, which, um, you know, they rely on fisheries observers on board their vessels, but they had to uh, do everything on paper. And it meant that every year they were spending 20,000 U.S. dollars to ship stacks of paper from Tuvalu to, you know, uh, New Caledonia and, and the Secretary of the Pacific Community, which was a, a cost that was a, a huge burden. Shifting to an online platform where they can use electronic tablets that are issued to the observers, where everything that the observers put into the, the tablet is immediately uploaded into, a, uh, into the, the internet and transferred you know, over the internet is groundbreaking. And the, the new accessibility that's available through things like Starlink, and, and now I know Amazon is going to be developing their own satellite array, um, is really going to change the space. It, it, it's it, in addition to, to what I just described and it, also the electronic monitoring uh, aspect of, of, you know, advancements in edge computing that would allow cameras to, to do the processing on board the vessel, spit the data up into a satellite that goes immediately to the, the management agencies 
is going to be revolutionary. And, and I think that's a really key aspect of, of where we are at this point in time in technology is that connectivity is becoming ubiquitous and even more accessible and more economical every day. Let's talk a little about some of the sensitivities of this work. Sometimes when I'm in spaces talking to people about public interest technology and, and data sharing, you know, people get concerned. They say, oh, this seems like surveillance. You know, what is going on? We're wiring all of these boats. But I think one of the aspects that is really appealing to many people in fisheries is not, you know, the idea of kind of constant monitoring of location, but the ability to demonstrate that their seafood is caught in compliance with laws so that they can enter markets that are requiring them to demonstrate sustainability and traceability. And in some cases, these records, you know, when you move away from a paper record to something that has a little bit more concrete digital reporting, tracking lat longs, maybe even tracking fuel consumption, then you can get loans from banks because you have a documented evidence of your business, or you can get disaster relief if something happens to your fishery because you have records that are stored and validated. So there are benefits in some of these types of monitoring and fish tracking technologies that the fishing community is seeing and is able to access for themselves. But it is a fine line where we want to make sure we're respecting people's individual privacy while stewarding a public resource. And how do you see that playing out in the conversations you're having in this space? Well, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, there are some concerns about privacy and, and about the sensitivity of, of some data. Um, but I, I think at, at, at a baseline level, we have to remember that it is a public resource and, and it is managed using public funds and it's intended to be managed in the public interest. So there is a, a certain level of uh, information that, that the public should have access to. Uh, to the extent that there is, you know, commercially sensitive data or trade secrets that are involved, and then absolutely by all means, we need to ensure that that protects the interests of the fishermen. Um, and I think with respect to technology, we have mechanisms that can do that. Um, I mean, we trust uh, we we trust banks around the world with our electronic information and and don't question it. Um, you know, so if they're able to do it with our own personal financial information, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be able to do it for for information about um, our fishing industries. And I, I think you're also absolutely right about the interests of uh, not just the markets, but financial institutions um, in ensuring you know their their own. Um, uh, reputations aren't at risk by investing in, say, uh, a, a company that might be engaged in, in something that is not within their, their values. Uh, we've seen an increase uh, as, as part of a, an additional role that I have working with Anti-Corruption and Money Laundering Association. Uh, and it, there's been a, a strong interest from banks in understanding who they're investing in and, and understanding who beneficial owners of companies are uh, to avoid any risks associated with, for instance, um, investing in a company that uses forced labor or um, you know, engages in any type of labor abuses um, in, in their supply chain. And so because these technologies are becoming more granular and because they're becoming more transparent and you have the, the potential risk that um, a market or a financial institution 
could end up getting caught up in a scandal, they're asking for more information and they're insisting that these technologies be put in place to ensure that they don't uh, experience that risk. And so I think the trend is only going to be more in that direction, not less. And, and those fisheries that, that embrace the technology and say, hey, we want to do the right thing and we're doing the right thing and we can prove it. Um, I think they'll be the ones that, that succeed. And to give a, a brief example, you know, for instance, uh, Austral Fisheries has been engaged in a blockchain traceability project where they are tracing uh, pet, uh, Antarctic toothfish from the point that it comes over the rail and all the way to the point that it hits the, the table in a restaurant. And they have a, a clear record, a clear connection, a steel thread between the point that that fish comes over to the point that it hits the table. And, you know, they can say with absolute confidence that fish was caught in a legal area using legal means according to a particular quota. And, um, and you know, they're, they're one of few fisheries that can do that with a, a high degree of confidence. And, and I think that's where things are headed. So as we come to the end of our conversation today, are there things that you're seeing where someone who wants to get involved in this work could come in and provide a new solution or a new technology? Are you think that what is it that you wish, oh, I wish this existed, whether it's a data tool or an AI tool or an actual piece of hardware? What's on your wish list? Oh, well, um, you know, I think some really exciting developments, uh, for better or for worse, the pandemic has driven a, a rapid increase in um, the ability of, of genetic tools. And, uh, and so like the, the rat test, the, the little brain scratcher Q-tip that we became all too familiar with, uh, they've developed that into a, a model for, for fisheries as well. So they can basically take, if, as long as they have a baseline, they can have the same kind of little swab and, and vial and swab a fish, put it in there, and it'll tell you immediately what type of fish that is. Um, and I think those kinds of technologies are, are just going to, to help improve our ability to identify the provenance and species of fish so we can eliminate fraud from the supply chain and, uh, and ensure that, you know, the, the fish that are entering the supply chain are indeed what, you know, are, are they're claiming those fish to be. Uh, so those types of technologies and, and, and that particular instance was actually driven from a university project, which I think is fantastic. And that's what we want to see is, is that uh, uh, not only to see it fostered at, at that level, but, uh, uh, but also try and support you know, a greater entry level uh, engagement from, from aspiring scientists and technologists to, to bring solutions to the table. You know, people who... Um, are still bright-eyed and and uh, and and happy about engaging in the space and and uh, and and hopeful and, and about the future to bring those solutions forward to uh, 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 help catalyze the the development of these these technologies in various respects. And what better way to bring your bright-eyed solutions forward than to show up in Bali in October and go meet all of this whole community? who is working in emergent technologies for small-scale fisheries and, and fisheries worldwide, right? We, we could all come to Bali and, and join the community and test out their ideas and go forward. Absolutely. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us here at the beginning of your day out in New Zealand, Bubba. We appreciate all of your thoughts and your work on small-scale fisheries. And for those of you joining us today, please tune in again for the next Ocean Podcast at Better Worlds. Thank you so much, Kate.